Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! The UN Convention on Biological Diversity just wrapped up its COP15 in Montreal, Canada. And this was a significant gathering where world leaders were coming together to make a global agreement for the protection of biodiversity. Yet Indigenous peoples continue to be sidelined in these negotiations, yet we're responsible for safeguarding 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. More than 190 nations have agreed to protect at least 30% of the planet's land and oceans by 2030. But will the deal at the recent UN summit on biodiversity in Montreal do enough to protect the Earth? We look also at the latest on Title 42, the Trump-era pandemic border policy. The Biden administration has asked the Supreme Court to allow it to halt the policy, but not until after Christmas. We'll also look at why tens of thousands of Venezuelans have been trapped in Mexico while trying to reach the U.S. at a time when the Biden administration is moving to ease some sanctions on Venezuela that have devastated the country. Plus, we go to Atlanta, Georgia, where five activists are facing domestic terrorism charges for taking part in a forest encampment to protest the building of what's known as Cop City. Cop City is, is basically a center where they're going to practice, the, the Atlanta Police Department is going to practice urban warfare. And so we think for a police department uh, that is no more than 1,600 uh, officers, the fact that they need this kind of facility, the largest in the country, uh, to, so, to fight so-called crime is a disgrace and a dishonest use of resources. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The IRS failed to audit former President Trump for his first two years as president, while Trump paid little or no federal income taxes between 2015 and 2020. The long-awaited revelations came to light Tuesday after the House Ways and Means Committee voted to release Trump's tax returns after a years-long battle to obtain them. Trump Trump paid just $750 in taxes in 2016 and 17, despite making tens of millions of dollars by reporting huge losses. In 2020, Trump paid $0 in taxes. Meanwhile, the IRS only started auditing Trump in 2019 after Democrats started pushing the issue, despite this being IRS policy for decades. Trump had refused for years to release his tax information by claiming he was being audited. Democratic Committee Chair Richard Neal said a redacted version of the taxes will be released publicly in the coming days. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington, D.C., on a surprise visit to meet with President Biden and address a joint session of Congress. It's his first time leaving Ukraine since Russia invaded last February. 
Biden's announcing another $1.8 billion in immediate funding for Ukraine, including its Patriot missile system. This comes as over 1,000 faith leaders have called for a Christmas truce in Ukraine. The signatories, including Reverend Jesse Jackson, Bishop William Barber, and members of the Russian Orthodox Church, write, quote, we urge our government to take a leadership role in bringing the war in Ukraine to an end through supporting calls for a ceasefire and negotiated settlement before the conflict results in a nuclear war that could devastate the world's ecosystems and annihilate all of God's creation. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization reports 10 million people around a quarter of Ukraine's population may suffer from mental health disorders because of the war. In Afghanistan, the Taliban has banned women and girls from accessing higher education. The Taliban have already barred female students from secondary schools since last year, despite pledges the move was temporary. The decision was met with immediate condemnation from Afghan women and rights groups, including the United Nations. What it is, it's clearly another broken promise from the Taliban. Um, we have seen since their takeover, uh, and also in the past months, just a lessening of the space for women, uh, not only in education, but access to public areas, um, their non-participation in, in the public uh, debate. In other news from Afghanistan, the Taliban has freed two American prisoners, including independent filmmaker Ivor Shearer, who was detained in August while filming near the site of a drone strike that killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman Zawahri. Shearer was arrested, along with his Afghan producer, Fazula Faizbaksh. It's unknown whether he's still detained. The Peruvian government on Tuesday ordered Mexico's ambassador to leave Peru within three days, declaring him persona non grata. The move comes after Mexico granted asylum to the family of ousted former Peruvian President Pedro Castillo, who was impeached and detained earlier this month. Castillo was arrested while on his way to the Mexican embassy in Lima to seek protection. His removal triggered mass protests across Peru that have left at least 25 people dead, many of them teens and hundreds injured by police and military. In Germany, a court convicted a 97-year-old woman who worked as a typist at a Nazi concentration camp of aiding and abetting the murder of over 10,000 people. Ermgard Ferchner was given a suspended two-year sentence. This is the state prosecutor, Maxi Wanson. Only a secretary is easily said, but the role of a secretary at the time in the bureaucracy of a concentration camp was significant. In immigration news, the Biden administration Tuesday urged the Supreme Court to reject calls from Republican-led states to continue enforcing the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy used to quickly expel migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border without due process. The policy was scheduled to end today, but the court temporarily blocked its termination after several states, led by Arizona, filed an emergency appeal. Biden officials, however, asked the 
the court to give them till at least December 27th, after Christmas, to end Title 42, to prepare for the arrival of what's expected to be thousands of asylum seekers who've been blocked from entering the U.S. and applying for refuge since March 2020. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. The U.S. Postal Service says it'll purchase 66,000 electric delivery trucks over the next few years and aims to almost exclusively acquire 100 percent electric starting in 2026. About a third of the USPS's $9.6 billion budget for its electric fleet will come from the Inflation Reduction Act. Biden has ordered federal agencies to purchase only zero-emission vehicles by 2035. A new rule from the Environmental Protection Agency will require heavy-duty vehicles like buses, delivery vans, and trucks to start drastically cutting nitrogen dioxide emissions in models starting from 2027. The EPA says the rule will reduce emissions of the harmful pollutant from these vehicles linked to heart and lung disease by 48 percent by 2045. Seventy-two million people in the U.S. live near major truck routes, mostly low-income and communities of color. Environmental groups say the measure does not go nearly far enough and that zero-emission alternatives should be more aggressively pushed. In another setback for environmental advocates, the EPA has delayed a decision on granting California waivers so it can set its own truck pollution standards to be stricter than federal ones. A Texas jury has sentenced former police officer Aaron Dean to nearly 12 years in prison for killing a Tatiana Jefferson in 2019. Dean shot and killed Jefferson while conducting a wellness check and as she was babysitting her eight-year-old nephew at her mother's home. Jefferson's family said they're also pursuing federal charges against Dean. Elon Musk said he'll resign as Twitter CEO once he finds someone, quote, foolish enough to take the job, unquote. Musk tweeted the announcement Tuesday evening after Twitter users voted yes on his poll over whether he should step down. Musk waited a day and a half before commenting on the results. This comes amidst deepening turmoil at Twitter. On Tuesday, 100 former workers filed complaints against Musk and the company, alleging illegal termination, sex-based discrimination, and failure to pay severance. Meanwhile, Twitter continues to leak internal documents via selected reporters in what they're calling the Twitter files. On Tuesday, journalist Lee Fung posted part eight of the release, which shows how Twitter assisted the Pentagon in an online influence campaign by protecting certain accounts at the military's behest including fake ones. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, has directed Wells Fargo to pay $3.7 billion in penalties and damages for mistreating consumers, including unjustified foreclosures and vehicle seizures. The CFPB says the bank failed to properly record home and car loans, leading to wrongful repossessions and overdraft fees. It's the largest fine ever imposed by the federal regulator, the previous record of $1 billion 
was also set by Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo has been fined by the U.S. government to the tune of nearly $20 billion since the financial crisis for consumer violations. The Senate advanced a $1.7 trillion spending package Tuesday that would keep the government funded through next fall. The measure includes $858 billion in military spending and $45 billion for Ukraine. To secure enough Republican support, Democrats sacrificed a number of social programs, including the hugely popular child tax credit, which cut the childhood poverty rate by half. California Congressmember Barbara Lee tweeted, quote, our child poverty epidemic is a choice made by the so-called pro-life party. Unquote. The sweeping bill also leaves out emergency pandemic funding, a path to permanent legal status for Afghan evacuees in the U.S., and includes a Medicaid provision that could lead to states disenrolling up to 19 million low-income people. Congress must pass the bill this week in order to avoid a government shutdown by a deadline of midnight Friday. And those are some of the stories. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez for his first broadcast from his new home in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Juan, I am here, sitting here with the New York City Council proclamation that was given to you on the last of your three lectures as you left New York, uh, speaking on issues from immigration to harvest of empire, the stories of Latinos in the United States, um, talking about worker rights, and also talking about your 40 years as a journalist, many of those decades spent here in New York City. The New York City Proclamation cites all of your work and contributions to New York. Congratulations. Oh, thanks, Amy. And it was great to see the terrific turnout at the, the last uh, presentation I gave on December 12th. I saw a lot of old friends that I haven't seen in years. And we will link to those stories, uh, to those speeches that you gave at democracynow.org. Well, today we begin our segments looking at what's happening around the world when it comes to the climate crisis. More than 190 nations have agreed to protect at least 30 percent of the planet's land and oceans for wildlife by 2030. The agreement was reached in Montreal at the U.N. Biodiversity Summit, known as COP15. The landmark agreement seeks to halt the Earth's sixth major mass extinction event currently underway due to human activity. As part of the deal, indigenous communities will have an increased role in protecting wildlife. Attendees at the summit included Helena Guailinga of the Sariaku community in the Ecuadorian Amazon. We always talk about indigenous people being 5% of the world's population and protecting 80% of the world's biodiversity. Um, so we are automatically, when we're talking about biodiversity, we're talking about indigenous territories and indigenous people. Aisha Siddiqua from the tribal lands of Mochiwala in northern Pakistan said indigenous knowledge is key to preserving biodiversity. 
that knowledge comes from being part of that land. And you cannot just go in to a place like the Amazon rainforest or the Himalayan mountains and take like samples of soil, take it back to your petri dishes and over a few months come up with a solution. It's going to fail. The United States did not participate in the formal drafting of the new agreement. That's because the U.S. and the Vatican are the only two countries in the world which have not signed on to the U.N. Convention on Biological Diversity. We're joined now by two guests. Leila Salazar-Lopez is executive director of Amazon Watch, and Ariel uh, Deranger is executive director of Indigenous Climate Action. She's a member of the Athabasca Chippewaian First Nation, joining us from Edmonton, Canada. Ariel, let's begin with you. Um, can you talk about the significance of this COP 15 uh, happened after the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh? Many people headed right to Montreal for this key meeting. What was accomplished and what wasn't? So I think that there were some really, really good accomplishments at the CBD COP15, including many, many, many references to Indigenous rights. And I believe that there were over 20 references to Indigenous peoples, our rights, including free, prior and informed consent. And just as the earlier segments just stated, it's absolutely impossible to create a biodiversity agreement without the inclusion of Indigenous rights, because 80% of remaining biodiversity is Indigenous lands and territories. So while we're seen massive progress to recognize the rights on paper. Some of the biggest challenges and risks that have come out of this COP is the fact that there aren't any real mechanisms with real teeth similar to COP27 that actually protect our rights, our culture, and our ability to advance our rights to say yes and no uh, to these types of agreements that are pushing forward, not just sort of we're going to protect biodiversity, we're going to save the planet, but they're centering colonial economic ideals in the center. They're still giving national and colonial states the power to determine what Indigenous rights look like when they're implemented in these agreements and how lands will be developed, undeveloped, protected, so on and so forth. There's a lot of really flowery language, but there still lacks any real substantive ways for Indigenous peoples to be leaders in this movement like they claim that they are hoping to advance. And Ariel, could you talk about the significance of COP15 being co-hosted by China and Canada, two of the biggest uh, polluters in the world and uh, nations that still promote extractive industry and fossil fuels? I mean, both of these countries have a really big interest in being leaders, or at least the optics of being leaders in advancing biodiversity uh, safeguarding um, because of that, because of the fact that they are massive leaders in creating emissions on the planet. My community, Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, is downstream from one of the largest industrial projects on planet Earth, the Alberta Tar Sands, and we're also within a UNESCO World Heritage Site that is being degraded ongoing, ongoing every single year to the point that my community attended this COP to, to sort of highlight how this park continues to be degraded by industrial development. So countries like Canada and China have a vested interest in appearing as though they are leading the way. In fact, there are reports that Canada is leading the way, that China is advancing technologies to help us meet these commitments. Yet the reality is, is they're creating these optics and diversion tactics so that they can continue business as usual. In Canada, where I come from, I can speak to this directly, where we are committing to 30 by 30 
solidarity, millions and millions of dollars for biodiversity protection, indigenous protection and conservation areas, yet we are not talking about ending the expansion of the Alberta tar sands. We are not talking about ending the destruction to biodiversity in other areas. We're creating the optics of sacrifice zones so we can choose which areas to save, which areas to diminish. And this results in human rights abuses, Indigenous rights abuses, and uh, the risking the, the planetary health for everyone. Uh, I'd like to bring in Leila Salazar-Lopez, Executive Director of Amazon Watch. Uh, Leila, uh, from your perspective, what are some of the victories and what's missing uh, from this agreement? And uh, and how would it, uh, some of the key aspects be implemented from what you can tell? Yes. Good morning, uh, Juan and Amy. So, so glad to be on the show with you all today. And um, there's a lot to re reflect on um, about this COP15 uh, and um, as Ariel um, already mentioned, um, this is something that we're, we're on one side looking at as, yes, it's, it's, it's good that there's an agreement. Uh, I think there's a lot of comparisons to the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, this, this agreement is to climate um, similar to how we were looking at how we see the, the Paris Climate Agreement to biodiversity. When we think of what's really happening on our Mother Earth, when we think of the climate crisis, when we think of the mass extinction crisis that we're facing as humanity on Mother Earth, um, we are in multiple crises, and I don't need to name them all, but um, this is in advance, yes, um, and as Ariel mentioned, it is it is it it, it, it mentions and, and acknowledges indigenous peoples, and that is that is an advance in comparison to what we would see in past years. Um, and it is better than than nothing. It is a framework. We're looking at this as a framework for biodiversity and how we can move forward to avoid further extinction and further harm to biodiversity. Uh, yet. Um, there's still a long way to go. The aim, the, the aim, if we look at target three, the aim is 30 by 30. That means protecting 30% of land, uh, water, and resources by 2030. And that is what the majority, um, that is what the, the, the agreement calls for, one of the, one of the, one of the um, key elements of the agreement. Um, however, um, you know, there are others that we're calling for 50 um, by 2030. Um, so this is an advance, um, and but there's still a long way to go. There's still a long way to go. When I think of the Amazon rainforest um, and the threats to the Amazon rainforest, um, the Amazon rainforest is already at a tipping point. Um, it's at a tipping point, and so that's um, the tipping point of ecological collapse in parts of the Amazon because of the, the deforestation and the degradation caused by many of the threats that Ariel was mentioning, including um, oil extraction, fossil fuel extraction, and mining. And so indigenous peoples, um, together with scientists and academics and activists and NGO organizations like Amazon Watch, we are calling for 
much beyond 30 by 30 or even 50 by 30. We're calling for 80 by 2025. And yes, that is ambitious. And it's very ambitious. But what we're calling for is a permanent, a commitment to a permanent um, protection of the Amazon rainforest by 2025. And um, we didn't get that, but we definitely advanced that call um, and the urgency of protecting the Amazon from global threats like industrial mining from countries like Canada. You name some names, um, uh, Layla. The talk about the corporations that have caused the most harm in the Amazon and the private investors promoting open pit mines, mega dams, and so forth, like uh, Canada's Bello Sun plans for the massive open pit gold mine um, in the Volta Grande region of the Brazilian Amazon. Uh, their stock taking a major hit while COP15 was taking place in Montreal. What do you attribute this to? Uh, thanks for that question, Amy. Um, yes, many of you may remember the Bellomochi Dam fight. Um, this is the biggest uh, dam in the middle of the Amazon rainforest on the Shingu River. Um, in the midst of that fight uh, 12 years ago, uh, many of our allies, um, indigenous peoples on the ground, um, the Brazilian civil society, said, you know, this dam, remember, this dam is not for energy, it's for mining. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing that Bellow Sun, and from the very, from, from, from back then, Bellow Sun was already eyeing um, the Shingo region um, to develop this massive gold mine. So Bellow Sun is a Canadian mining company, and it, um, it has plans to build the largest open pit gold mine in the middle of the Brazilian Amazon near the um, Belo Monchi Dam and the homelands of indigenous peoples um, who are already, already threatened by this mega dam, already threatened by uh, cattle grazing, by agribusiness, by land grabbing. So Belo Sun is a, a major corp, um, culprit and they are financed by um, the Royal Bank of Canada. And so one of the things that we did um, as an ally to Indigenous peoples um, and working to protect and defend the Amazon in solidarity with Indigenous peoples is we supported a delegation of Indigenous peoples from the Brazilian Amazon and other parts of the Amazon to call out Belo Sun in Canada. This was an opportunity because on the ground, they are not consulting Indigenous peoples they are moving forward with their plans with the permission of the Brazilian government um, to build this largest, the largest open pit gold mine. And so we went there to call out Belo Sun. We re released a, um, a report, risks, um, the investment risks of Belo Sun and, um, and held events and um, also held actions um, outside of, of banks like the Royal Bank of Canada. And just last week, the um, the stock price of this company tanked. Um, and 
Go ahead. We're going to be wrapping, and I wanted to ask Ariel, as you talk about what's happening in Canada, the lack of participation by the U.S. and the Vatican, um, what it means that um, it did not participate uh, in the COP15 agreement, um, uh, didn't join the U.N. Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, and do you think its lack of involvement uh, may have been what led to it being less watered down than, for example, what happened in Paris, the well-known uh, COP uh, climate agreement. Absolutely. I think without these key players being the Vatican, the, the you know, the, the, the origin of the colonial empire with the ideal ideology of man's dominion over nature not being there, and the United States, which has a deep history of their conservation movement, including the displacement, invisibilization, um, and devaluing and the and the genocide of indigenous peoples not being there absolutely is a not a surprise. Let's just get that out of the way. It's not surprising that they didn't see this as a priority. And secondarily, this is why we led to some really strong language. The concern, though, with the languages that came out of this is that it's still up to the states. It still centers the economy, which is something that the United States and the Vatican are still going to applaud. And it still puts our communities, our lands and territories at risk at risk for the ongoing colonial conservation movement that sees us as just someone to be consulted. We have consent throughout this document, but we all know that when it comes down to the states, it doesn't matter what kind of language we have in these international agreements if the states are still leading the way. We're going to still see the destruction of the Amazon, the destruction of the Boreal Forest. The UNESCO World Heritage has been in, in place for over 100 years. It's this anniversary where my community lives and my community is saying, Stop giving the government this money. Give it to us. Let us protect the caribou. Let us protect the lands and the water. For us, conservation and biodiversity management means land back. It means taking it out of hands like the Vatican and colonial empires that have created genocide for our communities. Ariel Tsekwi Deranger of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, speaking to us from Edmonton, Canada. She's executive director of Indigenous Climate Action. And Leila Salazar-Lopez, executive director of Amazon Watch. Thanks so much for being with us. Of course, we'll continue to cover the issue of the climate crisis. And if people want to go to our website at democracynow.org, you'll see our complete coverage of the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, that just uh, concluded as well. Coming the Biden administration has asked the Supreme Court to allow it to halt the Trump-era border policy, Title 42, but not until after Christmas. We'll also look at a U.S. Uh, relationship with Venezuela, deals that are not getting covered very much. Stay with us.
Nicaragua by Lido Pimienta. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. We turn now to immigration news. The Biden administration's asked the Supreme Court to temporarily keep in place Title 42 until after Christmas. The Trump-era pandemic policy has been used to block over 2 million migrants from seeking asylum in the U.S. In a filing Tuesday, the Biden administration asked the top court to allow it to end the policy, but not until at least December 27th to give border communities more time to prepare for what's expected to be an increase in the number of people seeking refuge in the United States. On Monday, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts temporarily blocked the Biden administration from ending the Title 42 policy, at least for the moment, with a group of U.S. states with Republican attorneys general who want to continue to enforce Title 42. We go now to San Francisco, where we're joined by Julia Neusner, the research and policy attorney with Human Rights First. She helped write a new report titled Human Rights Stain Public Health Farce. The group has tracked over 13,000 reports of murder, torture, kidnapping, rape, and other violent attacks on migrants and asylum seekers blocked in or expelled to Mexico under Title 42 since President Biden took office. Julia, welcome to Democracy Now! Talk about your findings and the significance of what's taking place right now at the highest court. What's going to happen? Good morning, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so we've been tracking the Title 42 policy under the Biden administration uh, since its inception. And uh, as you said, we've now tracked uh, 13,480 kidnappings and other violent attacks against migrants and asylum seekers stranded in Mexico or expelled uh, under Title 42. And that number is absolutely staggering, and it continues to climb for as long as the, uh, the policy is in progress. We know that Migrants um, and asylum seekers who, who are stranded at the border are specifically targeted by uh, organized criminal groups um, and, and even police and state actors for extortion, um, kidnappings and, and other attacks. And this policy has just made it so much worse. Um, and the so. Uh, as, as you explained, the, um, the Supreme Court has uh, stayed the termination of the policy, and uh, the, the U.S. government um, yesterday submitted its response uh, opposing, the, um, opposing the stay but, but requesting uh, additional days to be able to uh, implement, to, uh, to be able to prepare for, for the lifting of, of Title 42. So we don't know how the court's going to decide on that, but the, um, the government did indicate that it has new policies that it's, it's planning to implement uh, in preparation. And Julia, could you talk about the uh, erroneous view that many Americans have that Title 42 has helped to uh, to reduce uh, the migrant, uh, the uh, asylum seekers and migrant flows uh, from uh, along our southern border? Yeah, I, I'm Title 42 has absolutely not had that had that effect at the at the southern border. Uh, what it's um, what it's done is it's prevented people from seeking asylum at ports of entry, which is their illegal right. So people um, previously under U- U.S. and uh, international law um, were able to um, present themselves at a port of entry 
and uh, if they request protection, um, they'd be taken into U.S. custody and go through um, the asylum process. Um, but Title 42 closes off that avenue to seek protection. So it's forced people to cross between ports of entry um, and, 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 and kept many just trapped at the border. But, um, but we're seeing the numbers of people crossing between ports of entry are much, much, much higher than, uh, than they were before the, the policy was implemented. That's because the same forces that are forcing people um, to leave their homes, uh, uh, organized crime, climate disasters, uh, um, political persecution, many of the people arriving are Venezuelan, Nicaraguan, fleeing authoritarian governments. Um, and they, and those, um, in many cases, those, those, uh, those issues have gotten worse over, over the pandemic. So people are still coming. And... This policy uh, and, and, and any attempt at a deterrent, at, 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 at using cruelty to deter people from coming, um, has been completely ineffective. And, uh, and, uh, it, it's, and it's counterproductive because it encourages repeat entries. That's why um, the, the statistics we hear from Border Patrol and CBP about crossings are, are, um, are, are very inflated because many of the, many of the people who... Um, who, who they count as individual encounters are, in fact, people who, uh, who has, have attempted to cross many times, but because of this policy have been expelled right back to Mexico. So, um, and another consequence of these um, rising crossings between ports of entry that Title 42 has forced is that people are, um, th these crossings are extremely dangerous. People are for, um, need to walk through deserts and, or um, f make their way across very, very dangerous rivers often at the mercy of organized criminal groups who control border crossings. Um, and we've seen more uh, deaths of people crossing the border this year than any year since um, the government started tracking the deaths in 1998. So it's, it's been a total disaster. And, and in terms of um, the, the legal situation with uh, Title 42, with Chief Justice Roberts uh, issuing this order, what happens now? Does it go to the uh, full Supreme Court, or, or how do you see the the legal unraveling or the resolution of this conflict? So the states, um, the states that sought to intervene in this case, uh, on uh, claiming that the government wasn't adequately representing their interests. Um, again, this was a case uh, initially brought by um, by plaintiffs represented by the ACLU who were impacted by Title Forty Two and. Um, and the the government has defended the policy, uh, and the um, a district court uh, f found that the policy was illegal and um, and ordered that it end this month. And um, and the states sought to intervene. They were denied by um, the circuit court and by the appellate court um, because uh, because the the request to intervene was was made after final judgment. It was. Um, it was very late. So then in kind of a last ditch effort, they went to the Supreme Court and, and sought this stay and and were um, and and uh, Justice Roberts issued, issued this this administrative stage um, pending briefing by the parties. So the government, um, as I mentioned earlier, has submitted its brief uh, opposing the, um, the the request of, of the states who are um, um, seeking to intervene. The states have asked that the court stay the uh, the policy pending its decision on 
the question of whether the states, um, you know, sh sh should be allowed to intervene, uh, and uh, and the government ha has uh, has has asked that that stay be lifted, but with time to um, to implement uh, some some new policies and prepare for uh, for the the lifting of Title Forty Two. Uh, so so they've they've asked until at least um, for at, uh, until at least January uh, December twenty seventh. Um, for uh, b before that stay will be listed. And we're going so to follow that, of course. Uh, Julia Neusner, research and policy attorney with Human Rights First. Uh, you mentioned Venezuela, and we're going to look at Venezuela right now. Uh, this all coming as tens of thousands of Venezuelans are trapped in Mexico while trying to reach the United States. In October, the Biden administration expanded Title 42 to turn away Venezuelan asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. Venezuela has faced a years-long economic crisis, in part due to harsh U.S. sanctions. However, U.S.-Venezuelan relations are now shifting. The Biden administration recently moved to ease some sanctions on Venezuela, and the administration gave Chevron the green light to resume oil production in Venezuela. To talk more about these issues and an agreement that's been reached between the United States, the Venezuelan government, and the opposition, we're joined by Miguel Tinker Salas, professor at Pomona College in Claremont, California, author of The Enduring Legacy, Oil, Culture and Society in Venezuela, as well as Venezuela, What Everyone Needs to Know. Well, Professor Tinker Salas, welcome back to Democracy Now! What does everyone need to know about what has gotten very little coverage, but maybe because of worsening relationships between the United States and Saudi Arabia and its dependence there, um, the U.S. changing its attitude towards Venezuela and the deal that was just struck? Good morning. Um, if only slightly, uh, under General License 41, Chevron has been a, a U.S. company which has been in Venezuela for quite some time, has been allowed to resume production uh, in joint operations with the Venezuelan oil company PDVSA. However, much of that money will go to pay debts that the Venezuelan government has towards Chevron. So, in fact, the Venezuelan government will be receiving very little money about that. Um, what has other also happened is that um, they have targeted $3 billion of Venezuelan reserves abroad uh, in an agreement with the opposition uh, to allow the United Nations to use that money for humanitarian aid within the country. So there are small little cracks that one begins to see in this process, uh, building upon earlier conversations that led to the release of six individuals that have been arrested that worked for the Venezuelan oil company, Citco, and are now returned to the U.S. So they're small steps. But in addition to that, we have to consider that, that two days ago in the U.S. Senate, they passed the Bolivar Act, uh, which prohibits uh, any federal agency from having dealings with the Venezuelan government. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this new uh, United States policy allowing 24,000 Venezuelans to seek asylum. Uh, obviously, the Venezuelan population in the United States is the fastest growing group now among uh, uh, people of Latin American descent. Uh, but the, there are particular requirements here in terms of having not only a valid passport and airfare, but also an economic benefactor in the U.S. Uh, could you talk about this policy and how it came about? 
Well, this policy came about shortly after the Biden administration and an election eve decision uh, decided to apply Title 42 to Venezuelans and not allow them to seek asylum at the border. It, it proposes something that's largely unattainable. Uh, 24,000 people who have valid passports who can request asylum from within Venezuela, where there is no U.S. embassy or consulate, um, that have a plane ticket and have a U.S. economic sponsor. This really favors those individuals with resources. Uh, and actually makes it more difficult for individuals that are at the border for, for whom Title 42 has been applied uh, and therefore makes it uh, much more complicated. And, and for some people, it's highly unattainable. Uh, and in terms of we, you were talking before about Chevron, uh, obviously, the United States had imposed heavy sanctions on Venezuela's uh, owned um, uh, or largely owned company here, Citgo. Has that changed at all? What's the situation with Citgo? That, that has not changed at all. In fact, uh, Citgo was handed over to the opposition, uh, so the Venezuelan government has very little uh, a role within Citgo itself that operates in the U.S. So in that sense, there has been very little that's changed over the term of the sanctions. The sanctions continue to grip the Venezuelan economy. As we know, sanctions have not worked anywhere. They haven't worked in Iran. They haven't worked in Cuba. They increase the suffering uh, for the ordinary Venezuelan people. And that's, that's what's really tragic about both the immigration policy and the application of Title 42 to Venezuelans and continued sanctions in Venezuela as well. And I wanted you to ask you, Professor Tinker-Salas, about the agreement. Um, we talked about the U.S. and uh, and Venezuela, but this Mexico City agreement between um, the government of Maduro and uh, the opposition led by Juan Guaido, um, marking the resumption of long-stalled negotiations between them. What has been brokered? Well, what's been brokered is that, that the negotiations will resume. It's unlikely they'll take place this year. Uh, but there's another problem, and that problem is that Guaido's term in office uh, is set to expire. With the new year comes a new, a new assembly leadership. Uh, and what you have right now in Venezuela is a, is a major a potential split within the unified opposition, the G4, um, over whether Guaido should continue or not. So there's a small faction that argues that Guaido should continue as a so-called interim president of the National Assembly and therefore the one that was recognized by the Trump administration uh, and others that say that that policy has failed uh, and that we need new leadership in the opposition uh, and that therefore there is a split right now between several parties over what will be the character of the opposition uh, going forward, particularly going forward into negotiations. And I wanted to ask you, in terms of the, those who are coming from Venezuela, it's obviously a long trek through the uh, through uh, all of Central America up into Mexico, uh, what uh, who do you what's your sense of who is actually coming uh, uh, from Venezuela, from what sectors of the population uh, and how are they are they being treated differently at all from other migrants from or asylum seekers from uh, Central America? I think that's a very good question, because, yes, there is several layers here to unpack. One is that many Venezuelans had originally traveled to Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Chile, where they faced xenophobia, uh, they faced anti-Venezuelan reaction, um, and they began to move back uh, north again. Uh, another way joined them as well, coming out of Venezuela, um, and they began to trek through the Darien Strait. Uh, the key thing to understand is, what they, is that that's, that 
path had already been established earlier by Haitians and by Cubans who migrated to the U.S. several years ago, utilizing the same path through the Darien Straits, through Central America, through Mexico. Um, so we have a variety of forces that are, that are moving this migration northward. Um, there are new individuals coming out of Venezuela. Not all are uh, economically confronting situations of, of dire straits. Uh, others are, in fact, small merchants. Others have funds to get across the Darien Straits. And the key thing here is that, that that route has been mapped. It was mapped by the Haitians. It was mapped by the Cubans. It has an infrastructure. So Venezuelans joined that movement going north through that trek um, and then crossed Central America and got to Mexico. The problem when they arrived to the U.S. was that they experienced uh, that, the same experience that the Cubans of 1980 in Mariel experienced. Here we have new Venezuelans coming, many of them people of color, many of them working class, um, and they confronted a reaction um, that they didn't expect from other Venezuelans who saw them as uh, somehow not the, uh, worthy of the same treatment. Um, they were a lower socioeconomic class. Uh, they were bochornosos, they were uh, rabble-rousers, um, and, and they confronted a reaction that they had not expected. So that they have two, con two conditions they confronted. One was the Title 42 being applied to them and not being requested, not being allowed to request asylum. And the other was a, a reaction from the existing Venezuelan community that uh, saw them with suspicion, going to the point of saying that they were sent by Maduro uh, to destabilize uh, the Venezuelan diaspora and destabilize the U.S. We want to end with a clip from a Venezuelan who attempted to make it to the United States. In the jungle, many died next to me, drowned, etc. Many brought their pets, such as dogs, from home. I would give some advice to all these people. Migrating is not easy. If it's difficult, per se, imagine if you do it with children. More than once, you put your life at risk in the jungle. Miguel Tinkler-Sellas, if you'd like to comment for the last 30 seconds. I think that what he said was exactly true. We've interviewed individuals like that. We have an article in La Jornada last week we called The Venezuelan Exodus with Luis Duno, my co-author, uh, and we document that threat. Uh, and the immigrants are creating their own immigrant culture through social media and, and exposing the realities along that trek and at the U.S.-Mexican border, and we should hear their voices uh, in this context. Miguel Tinker Salas is a professor at Pomona College in Claremont, California, author of The Enduring Legacy, Oil, Culture, and Society in Venezuela. Venezuela and Venezuela, what everyone needs to know. Coming up, we go to Atlanta, Georgia, where five activists are facing domestic terrorism charges for protesting a massive police training center known as Cop City. Stay with us. Saturday morning by the specials. Lead singer Terry Hall passed away this week at the age of 63. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we end today's show in Atlanta, where five people have been charged with domestic terrorism for taking part in protests against a massive new police training facility known as Cop City. The protesters were taking part in a months-long encampment in a forested area of Atlanta, where the city wants to build a $90 million, 85-acre training center on the site of a former prison farm. Conservationists have long fought to protect the area, the South River Forest, from future development. Protesters are also urging Atlanta officials to invest in communities, not more policing. This is Jasmine Burnett of the group Community Movement Builders. People are asking for affordable housing, paving the streets, right? Having sidewalks, better access to MARTA. And instead, they are supporting a project, a $90 million project, to construct the largest urban warfare training facility in this country. And while we understand that this is a very local issue, right, it's happening right here, we also know that this is a national problem, this is a global problem. The same tactics that they're using against forest defenders are the same tactics that the Israeli government is using against Palestinians, right? The same tactics that the U.S. military is employing in Africa through the AFRICOM program, right? This is a global struggle against the occupation of our communities. We go now to Atlanta, Georgia, where we're joined by Kamau Franklin, the founder of Community Movement Builders, part of the coalition trying to stop the construction of Cop City in Atlanta. Kamau, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, we knew you in New York when you were part of the Center uh, for Constitutional Rights. You've moved to Atlanta. Talk about the significance of what's happening now and five activists being charged with domestic terrorism. Yes. Thank you for having me. And as an update, it is now six activists. A day after the initial raid, another raid was done and another activist was arrested and is now being charged. So we think these charges are setting up uh, really the idea of criminalizing dissent around Cop City. So far, these activists have been denied bail. There's a second bail hearing that is coming up. But because of the, the, the outrageous charges, the very generalized charge of domestic terrorism under Georgia law, um, that these folks are still being held. And this has been a concerted effort by law enforcement agencies from the city, uh, the Atlanta Police Department, the county, the Cab Police Department, the state, the uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. At the federal level, the Homeland Security and FBI have all been involved in a task force which is targeting these organizers and activists on the ground for being opposed to Cop City. And, and what are the specific actions that they uh, so allegedly have taken to warrant uh, these kinds of charges? What well, an interesting thing about these arrests is that these arrests were basically a, a, a push of in the force to destroy uh, everything that was built in terms of a resistance movement, uh, a, a group of folks that we call the forest defenders in terms of the loose coalition of people who have actually moved in the forest or who spend days in the forest camping out as an act of civil disobedience. Remember, Georgia is the place where John Lewis uh, and good trouble is supposed to be accepted. But civil disobedience in the forest is something that is not accepted when the police want to build a highly militarized training ground. And so while these folks were just at part of their encampment, they were raided by the police, uh, again, by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Folks were sitting, literally sitting in tree huts. 
um, where they were uh, uh, all their, their camp equipment was destroyed. Rubber bullets were used. Uh, they were guns were pointing at their head. They were involved at that particular time in no activity whatsoever. Um, except for the act of being in the forest. Uh, and they all were taken in and then charged in this sort of uh, RICO or conspiracy idea um, that the act of protest, the act of civil disobedience, uh, direct action uh, is something that's now being criminalized uh, in a statute that really is, doesn't get used in Georgia, but it's been on the books for a number of years. Um, and so these folks were doing absolutely nothing but being in the forest as forest defenders at the time of their arrest. And could you tell us a little bit more about Cop City? I mean, how did this idea originate? Who backed it? Uh, what politicians were behind it? Cop City is something that came out after the George Floyd uprisings of 2020. After George Floyd was killed, Breonna Taylor was killed here in Atlanta. Rashad Brooks was killed by the police. Um, and there were massive protests, as we know, around the country, even around the world. Um, around police violence, police brutality. Um, there were calls for defunding the police. There were calls to abolish the police. There were calls to find new ways to bring safety to various communities, particularly black and brown working class communities. And it was during that time that Keisha Lance Bottoms, then the former mayor of Atlanta and the city council, along with the Atlanta Police Foundation, the Atlanta Police Department, the police union came up with the idea to give basically a gift to the police to make them feel better as a way of changing the narrative. And as we've seen over the last few years since the George Floyd uprisings, um, both Democrats and Republicans, elected officials, private companies, the same private companies that claimed that they were supporting Black Lives Matter have put literally millions, tens of millions of dollars into funding this police apparatus, this cop city. And so during that time period of shortly after the uprisings, the idea was was came up with that we should, uh, we being Atlanta, should give this gift to the police of this training center, which again is basically, as, was, as Jasmine stated in your clip, is an urban warfare center where uh, there are going to be over a dozen uh, shooting ranges. There's going to be an explosive range. There are going to be mock cities to practice urban warfare. There's going to be a helicopter pad for Black Hawk helicopters to land. So uh, this is being done right in the middle of a working class and poor black city, uh, I mean, black area in Atlanta, one of the last left intact. Um, and so this is all planned around changing the narrative, talking about crime and how this facility is going to be used to fight crime, which is, you know, a, a lie on its face because this facility, even without protests, would take four to five years to build. So this is basically a boondoggle that's been given to the police to make them feel better, to change the narrative from abolishing or defunding the police to one in which now the police are needed to solve acts of crime. So can you talk about, Kamal Franklin, the alternatives to militarized police that your group and the whole coalition is calling for? And what's going to happen to these six activists charged with domestic terrorism? We just have a minute. Yeah, I mean, our groups have called for uh, alternatives to policing in terms of having outside agencies that call if there's mental health issues, if there's homeless issues uh, on a more radical end. We've actually called for our communities uh, having the ability to control any policing that happens, which means the ability to hire or fire policing, to discipline police in our communities. We've called for community uh, uh, cop watches where we watch the police safety walks, where we create other avenues of safety, which are not around 
around the police. So we are continually to supporting the organizers and activists who were arrested. Um, we are gathering bail funds as we speak. We're getting lawyers for these folks. Um, again, another bail hearing is scheduled for the 27th. So right now we need as much solidarity and support as possible to support these folks and to continue to fight against Cop City being built. Activist attorney Kamau Franklin is founder of the organization Community Movement Builders, speaking to us from Atlanta, Georgia. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadora, Sam Alcoff, Tamaria Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Massoud, and Mary Conlon. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. And our condolences to our dear colleague, Samin Fakande, on the death of her mother. We're all with you, Samin. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Check out our transcripts, our podcasts at democracynow.org. Thanks so much for joining us.